morning. That song, uh, when I was a little girl, my mom said, when you get in trouble, you just say, get thee behind me, Satan. I've used it all my life. So today you say, devil, not today. You got it? Good. Well, in two weeks, we're going to do a worship experience here at Salem Fields for the month of October. It starts in this, yeah, yeah, it starts in the second week. And I would just ask you to begin to prepare your heart because God has always already promised me that he's going to move a mountain in my life. And uh, it's a huge mountain, and it will never be moved without him. I'm going to cooperate with him. And I'm going to be watching the whole month of October to see what he does. Now, uh, the Bible says that do not forsake the coming together of the believers to worship together. And the reason that is is because something happens in here when we worship together corporately that can happen nowhere else. So people online, I encourage you to take at least two weekends and come and join us here because it's going to be, we're going to be expecting and anticipating what God's going to do. So would you do that? Would you do that? Just begin to pray and say, God, what do you want to show me? What kind of mountain do you want to move in my life? And we're going to point to the majesty and the beauty of God, and we're just going to watch what he does through the Holy Spirit among us, okay? It's going to be exciting, so be watching for that in two weeks. Try to, try to commit to come to every weekend in October, starting the second week in October, the first weekend in, in November. It'll be a whole month. All right, if we watch the news or if we peruse social media, which... Uh, you know, I walk around here in the morning and I see everyone, my device is down there, everyone's kind of in their own thing, and that's what we do, we peruse social media. If we do that, it doesn't take long to see that the new normal for our culture is to protest. It is, isn't it? It's the new normal. It seems like everybody is outraged by something. Now, the media does a great job at getting your attention and getting you to focus on what they want you to focus on. Now, racism is horrendous, but racism is one small slice of a much broader picture of injustice in our world and around the world. Ism, any ism at the end of a word, means that there is this superior inferior value that's placed on a person or a group of people. Follow me? Stick with me because this is intense. This is nitty gritty. This is hardcore Bible. So anytime we put ism on the end of a word, it means that there's a superior inferior positioning. Racism says that one race is superior to another. Sexism says that one gender is better than the other. Ageism says one age is better than another. Childism, adults are superior to children. Now someone, when there's an ism, someone is put down, someone is devalued so that somebody else can build themselves up and feel better about themselves. That's what's going on. And the world is outraged by it. And we need to be outraged by injustice. Now, a cultural response to injustice is to protest, 
It's to fight. It's to expect, and we don't, this never gets said, but the expectation under all of it is that we're going to get other people to admit that they're wrong. And the thinking is when we get them to admit that they're wrong, we do this in our marriages too, don't we? We try to get our spouse to admit they're wrong, and if they admit they're wrong, they're going to stop the injustice, right? Now, we kind of laugh at that, but the reality of it is that's the underlying mentality that's going on. The isms are running rampant in our culture and in our world. I looked it up. I found 234 isms. Just scroll through here. Pick out any one you want, okay? There's a lot of isms. That means that a lot of people are being offended, that means that a lot of people are looking at other people and thinking, I'm better than you are. And that makes me angry. And the world is angry. You know, Jay Lee Grady, I read some of his uh, articles, and he said, I believe that the real cause of global warming is the increase of human anger. There's a lot of hot air that's rising up and affecting our world. Um, it seems like somebody's getting offended all the time. Literally, people are offended by everything. Watch this. I'm offended because you're gay. I'm offended by Chick-fil-A. I'm offended by your Starbucks cups. I'm offended by the Donald Trump. You have an opinion that's different than mine. So now I gotta scream at why Cause I'm offended by everything Come on out, dance and sing. I'm offended cause you own a gun I'm offended cause you ain't no fun I'm offended by intelligent design I'm offended by the way you drive I'm offended by your race I'm offended when I look at your face I'm offended by your immigrants I'm offended you're a pacifist I'm offended by your pro-war stance I'm offended different than mine so now i gotta scream at why cause i'm offended by everything come on out dance and sing oh uh, yes excuse me down here yeah uh isn't some of this kind of ridiculous are, are some of these things actually maybe not worth getting offended over is every single one of these battles worth fighting why does it always have to be us versus them why does everything have to be so extreme and polarized? Wasn't this nation made great by leaders and people willing to compromise and sometimes meet in the middle? We're offended because you won't take a stand. We're offended because you're a middle man. We're offended because you're riding the fence. We're offended by your common sense. It's only 99 cents. That's less than that evil cup of coffee you just bought at Starbucks. I'm offended. He just called my coffee evil. Evil. We won't have any of that. Well, it, it's funny, but it's sad all at the same time, isn't it? You see, this series, The New Normal, has been looking at how people are influenced in our culture to think and act, behave, and to respond. And we have a key verse, and it says, 
it's out of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, which means that there was no, the authority had broken down. There was no respect for authority. And the people did whatever they felt like doing. And that's out of Judges, and that's very similar to what our culture looks like today. It, we would be hard-pressed to find someone who has not felt the sting of being put down by someone else, someone that's been devalued by the injustice of an ism. For me, I've known the sting of sexism. I work in a very patriarchal system where uh, there, are, there are issues with that, and I've, and I've had uh, that happen to me. Heidism is actually something I've watched people that I love uh, be very hurt by short jokes. Uh, I have watched the tears last weekend. The reason I, this was inspired was I watched the tears in the eyes of a young black man that said, I really wish you would do something on racism because I know that he's been bullied. Um, the, the cultural values without boundaries then take it to the extreme, almost the absurd. I think now we need to protest blondism, right? I mean, Patty, those blonde jokes, you know? <laughs> Funny, but put downs. How about the Hobby Lobby shopper that was offended by the cotton stalks in the fall uh, decor who went online and protested, and of course that's such a mature thing to do, <laughs> went online and demanded that the store stop, stop selling the dried cotton because slaves were used to harvest that cotton in the 1800s. We're a society that has become offended by literally everything. And the cultural value is to stand up and protest and say, you need to change. You need to change. Social justice, equality for my cause has become the cry of our day. And we get a steady diet of that. And the media will try to influence us in where our attention goes because wherever we get most outraged is where they're going to make the most money because that's where they're going to get the greatest ratings. It's, it's the unfair treatment that, that we've had or how wrong somebody else is. And then we point that out to make them look bad. And we get people to agree with us and the more people that we can get, the more people will buy into it because of course the majority means that they're right. But you see, that's our culture without boundaries. We live by our opinions. We live by our feelings. We live by whatever is popular. And we're not thinking for ourselves. Somehow we think it'll wake the offender up. Somehow we think that they're going to eventually admit it and they're going to correct it if we scream loud enough, if we protest hard enough, that they're eventually going to say, oh, I'm wrong. I'm going to stop doing that wrong thing. It doesn't work in marriages and it doesn't work in our culture. Anti-Semitism is horrible. Racism is horrendous. I hate it, especially for the Native American. I did a 
in-depth study on the Native American. And the Native American has just kind of given up and rolled over and become alcoholics and killing themselves. It doesn't work. And who's going to judge to say this is worse than that? You know, I've experienced sexism, but can that even compare to Saudi Arabia women who just got to historically drive this week because the men in that culture said that women had one quarter of a brain? That's why they weren't allowed to drive. So is that worse than what I've experienced with sexism? When I walked out into a lobby and I had just done a message and a man said to me, what right did you have to do that? Because to say that Saudi Arabia women, what, that's worse than what I've experienced, minimizes the pain that I've felt. And that's not fair. Who are we to judge this is worse than that. This injustice is worse than that. What do you judge as worse? Is it a child that's been crushed in spirit by a neglectful adult? Or is it a young man that's been shot in the city street? Is it a young man that's been shot in the city street? Or is it the, the torture of Otto Warmbier in North Korea where they said he was tortured and abused so much his father said that it looked like they took pliers and rearranged his teeth? Is it a Holocaust survivor or a child in India that's stolen and put into the sex trade? How can we judge which injustice is worse? Jesus didn't do that. He said, all injustice is horrendous. And it's really about how we respond to that. Watch this. I was born in 1934, one of a pair of twins. Miriam and I were the third and fourth children in the family. We lived in a very small village in Transylvania, Romania. We got down from the cattle car. People were selected to live or to die. People crying, pushing, shoving, dogs barking trying to make some sense of that place. And I actually turned around in trying to figure out what is that place. Never seen a place like that before. And as I turned around, I realized that my father and my two older sisters were gone. Never saw them again. We were holding on to mother for dear life. And Nazi was running in the middle of that selection platform yelling in German, twins, twins. He noticed us and demanded to know if we were twins. And my mother asked, is that good? And the Nazi said, yes. My mother said, yes. At that moment, another Nazi came, pulled my mother to the right. We were pulled to the left. We were crying, she was crying. And all I ever remember is seeing my mother's arms stretched out in despair as she was pulled away. I never even said goodbye to her, but I did not understand that this would be the last time 
that we would see her. And all that took 30 minutes from the time we got down from the cattle cart and my whole family was gone. Only Miriam and I were left holding hands and crying. We were Mangala twins, which we found out later on what that meant. us every morning and he wanted to know how many guinea pigs he had this day. I was used in two types of experiments. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they would put me naked in a room with my twin sister and many other twins up to eight hours a day. They would measure every part of my body, compare it to my twin sister, and then compare it to chart. On alternate days, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, they would take us to a blood lab. They would tie both of my arms to restrict the blood flow, take a lot of blood from my left arm, and give me a minimum of five injections in the right arm. The content of those injections, we didn't know then, nor do we know today. After one of those injections, I became very ill with a very high fever. My legs and arms were swollen and very painful. I was trembling as the August sun was burning my skin and I had huge red spots covering my body. The next visit to the blood lab, they didn't tie my arms. Instead of that, measure my fever. And I was immediately taken to the hospital. The hospital was another barrack, but it was filled with people who looked to me more dead than alive. Next morning, Mangala came in with four other doctors, never ever examined me. He looked at my fever chart, and then he declared, too bad. She's so young. She has only two weeks to live. For the following two weeks, I have only one clear memory, crawling on the barrack floor, because I no longer could walk, and crawling to reach a faucet with water at the other end of the barrack. And as I was crawling, I would fade out in and out of consciousness, telling myself I must survive, I must survive. After two weeks, my fever broke, and I felt immediately a lot stronger. It took me another three weeks before my fever chart showed normal. We never found our files. We never found out what was injected into our bodies. Miriam died June 6, 1993. to ask him any of these questions. Suddenly, I am asking him, you were in Auschwitz. Did you ever walk by a gas chamber? Did you ever go inside the gas chamber? 
do you know how the gas chamber operated? And he said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He said, this is the nightmare that I live with every single day of my life. And I asked him to go with me to Auschwitz in 1995. Then we would observe 50 years to the liberation of the camp. After 10 months, one morning I woke up and the following simple idea popped into my head. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? I knew immediately that he would like it and that was a meaningful gift. A Auschwitz survivor gives him a letter of forgiveness to a Nazi doctor. But what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I had the power to forgive. No one could give me that power. No one could take it away. It was all mine to use in any way I wished. And that became an interesting thing because as a victim of almost 50 years, I never thought that I had any power over my life. But what is my forgiveness? I like it. It is an act of self-healing, self-liberation, self-empowerment. All victims, all hurt, feel hopeless, feel helpless, feel powerless. I want everybody to remember that we cannot change what happened. That is the tragic part. But we can change how we relate to it. The stark difference between a cultural view of injustice and a godly view of injustice. A cultural view says my pain is worse than your pain and you have to stop causing me pain and I'm gonna do whatever it, I can do to point my, your flaws out. That is not the way Jesus did it. He said all injustice is horrendous. Jesus had a way of leveling out the playing field. He said all injustice is an outrage. Anytime that one human being is devalued in any way is offensive and it's against God's design. But fixating on the injustice as our culture does and fixating on the offender will miss God's best. As believers, we're called to be different. We're called to be different than a culture who does not look to God, who does not have the availability of the Holy Spirit to do the impossible in a life. To be able to love an enemy is impossible humanly. But as believers, we say that we have the Holy Spirit. Does the world see something different in us? You see, Jesus modeled how to deal with injustice effectively and respectfully. And he turned the tables on culture. He always did. He literally did when he went into the temple and he saw that the, temp the money changers were cheating the poor people that were coming to the temple to worship God. And they were 
basically stealing all of their money. And he got so angry that he used his, angry to, his anger to turn those tables and to teach people about injustice. That's why he gave us the emotion of anger. It is not sin. It's given to us to have boundaries and to be harnessed by him so that we can meet injustice the way that he calls us to meet injustice. See, culture points the finger and expects other people to change and they expect injustice to stop. But Jesus knew that there would always be injustice. And when we're fighting that, we're fighting a losing battle because it will never go away as long as there are hearts that are cold to God. So Jesus appealed to the heart of people. And I want to give you three examples. First of all, let's read the scripture together. We'll read it up here. As he was speaking... Teachers of the religious law and Pharisees. Now, these were the religious people. They brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, pointing at this woman, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, they're not only pointing out her sin, but they're humiliating her as well. I would say that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law felt pretty superior right there, didn't you think? Because they hadn't committed adultery, so they could point the finger at this woman, put her in front of other people, putting her down, putting her down. And the, and the teacher, uh, they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And they were trying to trap Jesus here because they were trying to see if he would just kind of go along with what she did or if they would if he would go along and stone her as well so they were trying to trap him but Jesus and the genius of Jesus the law of Moses says to stone her they said and they said what do you say Jesus so Jesus very calmly very simply knelt down in the sand and he wrote something that we don't know what it was but when he got up he said Anybody here never sin? Whoever hasn't sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone at her. And one by one, they walked away. Because Jesus caused them to reflect. They may not have committed adultery, but there was something in their heart that needed attention. Jesus is a genius. You see, the accusers of injustice were pointing their finger and they were saying at, to this woman, look at what she's done wrong. They humiliated her. They devalued her. And Jesus, he calls us to self-reflect. And he calls us to look within our own heart and admit whatever's in there. It may not be what you're pointing your finger at, but there's something. Let's look at another one. People were bringing the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on. But the disciples, they got disgusted at this, and they rebuked those little children. And when Jesus saw this, he got ticked off. He was angry. And he said, he said to them, he said, let the little children come to me. And don't hinder them. Because if you won't receive anyone that won't receive the kingdom of God like a little child... Well, they'll never enter it. So he was saying, adults, watch these little children. You've got a lot to learn from them. 
he turned the tables. The culture said the culture was exhibiting ageism. One age is more important than another. Jesus was saying, everyone has value. The children have value. And so he brought, he said, bring them to me. And he took them in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. The injustice was ageism. Jesus said there's a high and equal value on all people, including children. Now this next one is so significant because as we saw, forgiveness is really important, but it goes way beyond forgiveness. In Matthew, Jesus said these words. He said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, a lot of people misinterpret this to say you're supposed to forgive over and over. No matter how you're treated, you're supposed to. No, Jesus never said that. He never had a tolerance for injustice. What he's talking about here, he said, don't resist. He says, engage. Don't run away. Don't get up in someone's face and fight. There's a third way. Now, when he was saying, if anyone has slapped you on the right cheek, in that day, there was a cultural uh, value of people outwardly, even the law condoned it, of saying that some people were more superior than other people. Masters were more important than slaves. Adults were more important than children. Men were more important than women. That was the cultural mentality, which still exists today. So Jesus was saying, if you've been slapped on the right cheek, that meant that he was speaking to the one that was in the inferior position, whether it was the child or the slave or the one. He was speaking to the one who had been offended because when someone was slapped on the right cheek, it had to have been done right-handed because they never used their left hand. They thought it was unclean. And they'd smack the, the right cheek. Now, the, the left cheek was, was reserved. Stick with me here. The left cheek was reserved for hitting if you were of equal value. So he's speaking to the one who has been offended, and he's saying, if you were slapped there, turn the other cheek. This is a response that Jesus is saying in the midst of injustice and in the midst of you being put down and in the midst of you being humiliated and everything within you wants to get revenge and point the finger back at another person, Jesus says the strategy here is to turn the other cheek. Jesus was not passive. He was not aggressive. He operated out of a third way. And he was saying, when you turn the other cheek and you place your left cheek to this person who has just offended you, what you are saying to that person is, I know my value. And in my heart, I will not allow anyone to put me down because I am of value to God. And then it's on the other person's shoulders in how they will respond to you. You see, when we are confident in our own value, and we don't, we don't, we're not there, are we? So many of us put ourselves down. 
That means that there's a wound, there's something in our own heart that needs attention. Because any type of insecurity will create prejudice in you. Because when you put yourself down, you will have to point someone else's flaws out so that you'll feel just a little bit better about yourself. That's a cultural view. Jesus said, turn your cheek and look within your own heart at what needs attention. Because we all have prejudices. We all have biases. It's just that we want everyone else to change so that we don't have to do the hard work to change ourselves. But the way of Jesus always turns the table back to healing our own heart. Jesus wasn't a racist. He wasn't a sexist or any kind of ist. He related to people with racial equality. We see that with the Samaritans. He enjoyed being with the Samaritans, he, with gender equality. We saw that with him at the woman at the well. But here's the thing. He was not focusing on not being a racist or a sexist or any other kind of this. He was not focusing on that. He didn't focus on ending injustice. He knew that that was ridiculous as long as people were not uh, looking to God. He responded from a heart of love and a heart that valued all people. Are we there? As believers, are we there? Or do we place a higher value on some than others? Are we doing that within our own heart? It's harder to go there. It's much easier to hold up a sign and to get in someone's face and to be angry. But this will stop you in your tracks. And I wonder, believers, are we showing this kind of strength to the world? It's all about focus. If we try to win by fighting something that will never change, or if we step back and say, you know what, I'm going to be the one who chooses to have a heart like God. So I want to give you something really simple but it'll take a lifetime to work out and practice. Stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and roll. When you're on fire, you stop, drop, and roll. First of all, stop. Stop and think. Stop and think about this. When you hear yourself pointing out somebody else's flaws, that's a clue for you to stop and say, Jesus, what's going on in my heart that causes me to want to point out someone else's flaws, it's probably because I have something that needs to be addressed in my own heart. In Proverbs, it says, wise people think before they act. Secondly, drop. Drop allowing other people to have power over your thinking. Remember that when you see things, don't take it at face value. There's always more to the story. There's always more depth. And anytime you want to follow God, you have to dig and dig and dig to get the insights that he wants you to hear. You have to stop and drop and you have to listen. Name your prejudices. Name your biases. I know what mine are. When I was in the uh, 
program at James Madison University and I was becoming a professional counselor, the very first thing that we learned was how to name our own biases because if we don't name our own biases, we will project those onto other people. And I discovered that I hated child abusers. I hated pedophiles. And the Lord really checked me on that. I hate what they do, but God calls me to be like him, which means that he sees value in all people. What? That's crazy. I can't do, well, of course I can't do that humanly. The only way that I can separate the behavior of someone with the person of they, who they are is to, is to focus on Jesus and allow him to shine a light on the places in my heart that need to be healed because the more that I do that, the more I'm going to value myself. And the more I value myself, the more I'm going to project that onto other people. Jesus is a genius it's just that we don't take the time to really dig into what he's trying to show us. The Bible says, do not be conformed to this world. We are inundated with this world. If you think about how much time you spend with God and how much time you spend out in the world, that should frighten you. <laughs> because we absorb the values of those that we're around. We have to be intentional about seeing into the invisible. And God says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you have to surrender your heart and your mind over to the Lord to say, God, I am so affected by everything around me. I want to know your word. And I want your word to penetrate my heart deeper than a double-edged sword. And I know it's going to hurt, but I also know that you're going to heal me so that I can be the one, so that I can go into a dark world and I can show your ways to the world, Jesus, by living them out in my own life. And just roll by seeing other people, including yourself, of high and equal value. It's my goal. It's my goal to allow God to take that anger that was so out of control in me for so many years and to fashion that in a way that says, I will not stand up for injustice, but I will do it God's way. I will turn the other cheek. I will engage in this process. I will engage in culture. I won't run away and I won't fight, but I will do it God's way and I will allow him to show me whatever's in my heart that needs to be healed. You know what my defense against sexism was? I always saw myself as a person first. Other people didn't. When I'd walk in a room, especially in a, a system that valued men over women, uh, they would see a woman walking in. Well, I always knew I was a person walking in. If we could see people as people first, what we have in common, and then whatever our differences are, second and celebrate those differences, but we have so much in common. Find what's common first. You do realize we're all one race, right? The human race, we're all one race. We have a lot in common. In Galatians, it even says this. It says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're all one. It is humanly impossible for us to do this. The reflection of God in your life, in this culture, 
will be if you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you and that you're tuning in to his ways. <clears throat> we have to address this insecurity in our own heart. The one that compares, the one that looks to other people and says, oh, I wish I was that. And we put ourselves down. The one that judges, the one that places some people more superior and other people less inferior. And we all do that. And if we don't, we're in tr if we don't admit that, we're in trouble. Because we will be the one that will do the very thing that we hate. Unaddressed insecurity will make us prejudice. Search my heart, God. Are you courageous enough to face injustice this way? Search my heart, God. Show me what's going on in there that's part of the problem. And whatever it is, I'm going to turn that over to you. Whatever wicked way is in there, Lord, I'm going to surrender that to you and I'm going to ask you to heal that in my heart. This is a courageous response to injustice. It looks very, very different than our culture, our new normal today. And I wonder who would give a knee to that. You know, it never fails. When I do a message like this, I'm always challenged in the very thing that I'm speaking on, and I love that because it makes it very fresh, and I have to dig in, and I have to spend time listening and praying to the Lord, asking him to change my heart, but it happened this week. I was headed over to the river with the guys. It's a yearly kind of thing, and they go camp out, and they invite me one day, and I go over and join them, and it's beautiful. But right before I left for the river that day, this last week, it was a beautiful day, man, I got bummed out. I got an email. And there was something that I've been working on for about four months, very intentionally, and it's been challenging, and, you know, I was hopeful with it, and I, it was going to be something that was just really going to enhance uh, what happened here at Salem Fields Community Church. And, and I got this email that said, not going to happen. And I thought, man, all this work. There's been money spent on this. This is so unfair. This is so unfair. And I remembered, and I stopped. And I was reminded of something that Buddy told me just a few days before, the wisdom of an old boy in McGackiesville, right outside the city of Kieseltown. Buddy told me, he said, one of my friends just posted something today, and I think it's really awesome. So I stopped, and I remembered this. And I asked Buddy to send me what the old boy posted, and here it is. And remember, I had just gotten this injustice. I stopped. I remembered. And it said, here, here's what the old boy said. I've got an idea. How's about we all get up next Sunday morning or Saturday, whichever your day of rest may be. Now, I like that he was inclusive. Seventh-day Adventists, Protestants, whatever. How about we get dressed, go to church with the fam, spend awesome time of worship with the Creator and Lord Jesus Christ. How about if we go out to lunch, we take an afternoon drive through the mountains, we enjoy his creation and his majesty, and forget about the NFL, the NBA, or any statues, and all the other, I'm going to replace the word, stuff. <laughs> he said, just my thoughts for the day. And I thought, wow, 
I am so blessed to have this car I have. I put the top down. It was beautiful. I headed out towards Sperryville, some of the most beautiful countryside there is. And that Luray Mountain in my car is just a blast. And the top was down, and my music was playing, and I spent time with the Lord. And I thought about this thing that had just happened, and I still was bummed, but it began to kind of get into perspective. And right before I left, I decided that I was going to respond because Jesus always calls us to respond, not to lay over, not to be a doormat, but to respond. And I had responded. My goal in my responses are to do it with kindness. I want to be kind. And so I had responded, and I thought about all of that, and I was driving out, and, and I, I went over the mountain, and I ended up with some incredible guys on the Shenandoah River. Right, Jackson? <laughs> and, uh, I thought about all this, and I thought, you know, I want to honor God. It's the only, it's the greatest goal that I have in life. I want to honor God. And you know what that means? That means that I'm going to be different than all of the voices that I hear out in the culture. I want to be the change that takes some light out into a dark place where people are just scrambling for hope. I want to do that instead of expecting everybody else to change. Because I know that injustice, it's always going to be. As long as there are hearts that are cold for God, there will always be injustice. And at the end of the day, I want my self-respect and my dignity to be intact. I want to be different. I want to be a light for God. The scripture says in Romans, as surely as I live, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day that's going to happen. But it goes on right in the next verse to say this. Each one of us, every single one of us, including everyone on the face of the earth, will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in our brother's way. Now, if we focus on that, we'll be saying, Lord, I surrender these places in my heart that aren't pleasing to you, and I want to be the one. I want to be the one. You know what my prayer is? And this is why at the river I asked Jackson to sing this song. My prayer is that the next generation sees that out of us. And they'll want to follow Jesus too. I don't know about you, but I want to be different. to be safe. 
this faith, the baton of faith from one generation to the next, if they see real, if they see what you say is important, is lived out in your life. It's the only way it's going to be passed. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It's like a double-edged sword. It pierces our heart. And it hurts, and there's pain. But God, it heals, and there's victory and freedom. And so, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your model of how to respond to injustice, that we don't lay down, and that we don't get in anyone's face, but, God, we turn the other cheek. Forgiveness, of course. But we engage in a world that desperately needs to see how to thrive and how to have self-dignity, self-respect, and to give it. Father, may we be the ones that carry that light out into a dark world. Now, I'd just like to ask you as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, no one looking around, if you're that person that says, I want to be different, I'll allow God to shine that light in my heart to show me where those places 
of bias and prejudice are in my own heart? Would you just raise your hand very quickly? Thank you. Thank you all over the, I'm telling you, those, those of us have raised our hands, we can change the world. Not by being passive, not by being aggressive, but by doing it Jesus's way. Study this, practice it, live it, talk to me about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's deep, it's wonderful. It brings freedom. Father, thank you for those that have raised their hands. And if you're here today and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to offer that to you right now. It's simply as simple as this. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. And that means right now your heart might be beating. That means that Jesus is standing at your door and he's knocking. And he says, anyone that will open the door, I will gladly come in with them. You don't have to clean up your house. You don't have to clean up your heart. You don't have to do anything. He just wants to come in and have a conversation with you. And the way you open that door is simply to say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need you in my life. I believe that you are my savior. Will you come in and help me to remove anything in my heart that isn't pleasing to you? If you've done that just now, if you've allowed Jesus to come into your heart, would you just raise your hands? No, one look at, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll tell you what, with those hands, we can change the world. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your faithfulness to me, the insights that you've given me that can only come from you, the freedom that I sensed that day that I headed over to the river to stop, drop, and roll. This is the way I roll, God. I thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done in my life, for what you've done in the lives of people here. Your name is wonderful. Your name is powerful. Your name is beautiful. By your name, we are changed. And that has happened here today. Our world is now a better place. Help us, Lord, to practice it, to be reminded, to stop and think, to be wise, to drop the power that anyone or media or anything has over our lives and listen to you. It's the way we're going to roll. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm telling you, there's so much freedom in this. For those of you that raised your hand for salvation and said you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a table out there and a wristband, and there'll be a pastor there that'll explain what you just did. I'm so excited about what's happened here today because many, many people said, I want to be the difference. I want to show Jesus in a world. You've really got to study this passage, take those notes, uh, really uh, live this. And uh, you'll be amazed at the insights that God will give you and the difference it'll make in your life. Love you guys, and we'll see you next time. I want to be changed.